Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. Before we get into our regular scheduled programming today, I wanted to take a moment and update you on two topics that I have previously had shows about um, on this program. So one of those topics is the Confederate monument that exists outside the Washington County, Virginia courthouse that sits in Abingdon. Um, For those of you who may not have seen these reports coming out recently, the Washington County Board of Supervisors in December made a unanimous decision to move the monuments to a field off of Bundy Drive um, after uh, about a year's worth of community-wide debate as to what would happen with those monuments. You might remember that a petition began and there were many citizens that signed that petition and then other individuals came to the board to request different places they thought would be more appropriate for those uh, Confederate monuments to be. So they did vote uh, to move those monuments to this location off of Bundy Drive, which is very close to uh, the government building. Well, this month, and I don't know if you've, you've come across this article yet, but this month at their meeting, they also continued this discussion. They are unsure how much it will cost to move those monuments. As of right now, one of the estimates is between ten dollars to $70,000 uh, to relocate those statues. Now, these monuments are being moved to make some space for construction and expansion of the Washington County Courthouse uh, that needs to happen at that courthouse. And a few other individuals representing different groups in the area petitioned for those monuments to be located in spaces that they had available, but the, the Washington County Board of Supervisors decided they preferred for those monuments to be moved to this, uh, this area that's very close to the government building, the county government office building off of Buddy Drive. Now, the two monuments in question um, at the last meeting one supervisor uh, was interviewed afterwards that said that, you know, the board thought that this was a, a great location, especially um, as they envisioned that this end of this place for these monuments would be a park with also picnic tables and a path that would lead to the monuments and historic markers could tell the story of each. So if you've been watching this story, the latest on this then is that the monuments outside the courthouse will be moved. They are planning to move them over near the government building off of Bundy Drive, and they are planning to establish a park there with some information about each of the monuments. Now, the second piece that I also want to update everyone on is about two weeks ago, I covered a story about Bristol, Virginia, and the landfill there, and citizens, what they've been experiencing at that landfill. what I want to to point out on the show today is just to update everyone about kind of what's happening there and maybe what you can do to help. If you're following the Facebook page that is dedicated to this show, you'll note that a couple weeks ago I put up a request for action, ways that you can help out residents that are dealing with the odors that are that are coming from that landfill. What can you do? If you're interested in helping Bristol residents relief through purifiers, there are two ways to give. To give online, you can go to onrealm.org, that is O-N-R-E-A-L-M dot org slash F-P-C Bristol slash, and there's some additional uh, language here. I'll tell you what, 
go onto the Facebook page and click the link. You can then select the minister's discretionary fund and put purifiers in your memo. You can also mail a check to the church, write minister's discretionary fund purifiers in the memo, and you can send that to 701 Florida Avenue, Bristol, Tennessee, 37620. All donors will get a tax deduction letter at the end of January. And if you're interested in working on this issue with the other citizens that are dealing with this issue, you can contact Hope for Bristol. Their email address is hopeforbristol at gmail.com. Now let's get into our regular scheduled program. Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. This week on the show is the second interview in our series on the 2022 election. As I mentioned on the last episode of Red, White, and Confused, this program is part of the weekly lineup at 90.7 WEHC, which is operated at Emory and Henry College. Emory is part of the 9th Congressional District in Virginia. So with that in mind, I have sent invitations to all of the candidates who are planning to run in this district for our congressional representative. Today on the show, I'll be chatting with Elijah Cordell. Elijah was born in Richlands, Virginia in Tazewell County. He graduated Honaker High School in 2009 in Russell County and has lived and worked throughout the surrounding counties of the 9th Congressional District throughout his life. Elijah attended Davis and Elkins College, where he studied political science and history with a focus on American political history, Appalachia, and public policy. He served as both vice president and president of the Student Government Association, championing partnerships between student organizations to better serve students. While at the college, he worked with many nonprofits and spearheaded campaigns to reinvest in the community of Elkins. He is running in this election as an independent candidate. So Elijah, welcome to the show. Hello, and thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for being on. So I want to start with some of your background. I mean, I gave a little introduction about you, that you attended Davis and Elkins College. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, what made you pick that college? And then what made you kind of come back here? All right. So uh I'm originally from Southwest Virginia, and my background is, is I didn't come from a family of privilege or anything like that, and I didn't have very many opportunities uh, around the area, and my wife had actually went to that college when she graduated, and when I met her, she told me about it, uh, so I reached out to them to get a chance because my grades weren't the best, but I was, I was ready to give something a real try, and I was an older person by this time. I was 26. Um, so I reached out to them and they're like, yeah, I'll give you a shot and let you come get your education. And I had known for a long time when I graduated that I wanted to come back and do something for this area because I knew that things weren't right. Uh, just because this is the way things were, wasn't the way they had to be because it didn't seem like there was much of a chance for an opportunity or future for a lot of people here. And that's why they leave. So when I left, I had every intention of coming back and doing something for my home. Uh, but I needed a place that would give me a chance to get my foot in the door, and they did. 
Okay. So let's turn to the election. Um, you mentioned that, you know, things didn't seem quite right here and you wanted to return to kind of help promote this area. So what do you think are some of the biggest issues facing citizens in the ninth district? Like if you had your top three, what are those things that you think are really affecting people here? I would say out of the top three, there's definitely uh, social and economic conditions. And what I mean is that uh, our economy is in a slump. Like the pillar of our economy was the coal economy. And once that collapsed, everything else kind of went with it. And we became more of a service economy, mostly minimum wage jobs where people are getting paid seven. Well, originally we're being paid seven twenty-five an hour uh, pre-pandemic. And these are people with families who have kids to feed and bills to pay. And they're choosing between going to a doctor um, or paying the rent or paying the bills. And that's just no way to live. And everybody's like, well, why don't you do better? Why don't you go find another job? And it's like, well, where are the job opportunities in the area? Because they're only retaining about 25% of what they were uh, pre-government regulations on coal. And so I would say the economy there and then the next thing is health care is like, despite these people working full time jobs, they can't afford health care. They have they need life saving medication, life saving treatment, or at least the luxury to go and get some glasses or dental work. And they can't achieve that working 40 hours a week at the jobs they're at. And these people are not lazy. They're some of the hardest working people in the country. And that's what blows my mind is how can you have that work ethic and that dedication to a job? that isn't going to give that return to you and uh, help lift you up. It's like you're there 40 hours a week sweating and bleeding for these people and you're making them three to four times the money that you'll ever see. And you're left to figure out the uh, circumstances of your own life and it doesn't need to be that way when you're giving your honest effort to something. Yeah. So you mentioned the economy and you mentioned healthcare. Actually, you're the second candidate that I've had on, and I wanted to ask this question to, to all candidates. It's specific about health insurance. You mentioned how a lot of people here are picking between, you know, feeding their families or getting essential health care. You know, you, you could have someone making, let's say, $15 an hour, and they can't afford the, the health care they're being offered by their, their employer, and they can't afford anything on the healthcare marketplace. Do you have any ideas about kind of how to solve that? Uh, well, I mean, there are two ideas I have about this. Uh, on the national level, I'm definitely pro healthcare for all. I mean, we are the richest country in the world. Uh, we already pay a pretty high tax rate. Um, and it's all about where our money's invested. And a lot of that is going into the military and the energy sector. And I understand the importance of that. But my problem with going to the military is it's going towards weapons and not towards uh, soldiers and their health care needs, because we have so many soldiers that are already here and suffering. Their needs are not met, but we're instead arming new generations and preparing them to take on that trauma. when we haven't resolved the problems that these people already have. So I'm saying we should redirect that money into healthcare for all. We should ensure that everyone is able to have their medical needs met. On a state level, uh, the only thing I can offer is transparency laws. And what I mean is that if you're a doctor's office in the area or a healthcare provider, then you have to have uh, your the cost of your treatment and things up on like a menu board. 
so that people can shop around and do price comparisons. Um, and that's a, that's the thing a lot of congressional candidates don't think about is there's things you can do at your state level and that and your regional level uh, political pressures you can apply to other leaders and reach out to other organizations to work with to get things done if you can't get your agenda done on the national level. That's a really interesting idea about having a menu. I, I know of people who will be shocked, right? They go to the doctor and then they receive these bills that they had no idea that they would ever receive because let's say they got their medical care at a place that wasn't covered by their insurance, but they didn't realize it at the time. They just, yeah. needed, they just needed help. And uh, my mom is one of those. She, she had a procedure done and then all of a sudden she gets this bill and it's just, Hey, you've got to pay this because you had this done at a place that wasn't approved. So you know, more transparency would, would be kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, essentially the idea is if we can't institute national health care for all uh, on that level, then what we could do is we can at least make it to where people can shop around for competitive prices. Is if you know that your treatment at this doctor's office uh, or whatever you need done there is going to cost you $2,000 more than this next office, uh, and that office is willing to take you as a patient, then you're obviously going to take the cheaper one. So. Yeah. Yeah. What really frustrates me about health insurance and healthcare in this area is that I feel like people push off things that are, that could be life-saving yes. because they just don't have the money or they, they just can't afford the insurance. The insurance is a massive hurdle. It is. And then, and then another thing too, is, is where we're a more isolated and rural area, we have limited access to healthcare providers. Like our primary, our largest one is ballot. And in a lot of cases, they leave much to be desired um, in terms of what they can offer people and the price that they offer their care at. And so that, and you know, that's another thing we can look at too, is diversifying our healthcare providers in the area is another step we can take is we can reach out to other healthcare providers and uh, ask them to come in and offset some of the burden. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you a, another question uh, that's rela somewhat related to healthcare, but I consider it more related to issues facing people in our area. It's the access to broadband. I, um, I know that money has been given to this region for that, but there are still so many people who just don't have access to the internet. Do you have any thoughts on this? How do we, how do we get people connected online and what kind of an impact is this having on our economy? Well, I'm, I can say that for me growing up here, um, I did not see really an internet connection, not even a dial-up connection um, until I was 16 years old. 17 years old um i that's when i had an internet in my home for the first time uh other than that my only access to it was at school so i understand the challenge of that and with the world being what it is we're ever more connected through technology like the the convenience of being able to pick up a device and instantly speak to someone or find the information uh that we otherwise wouldn't have access to and that's one problem this area always has faced is that isolation and being behind the times uh, technologically, even if we might keep up economically sometimes. Uh, I think that that should be a priority uh, because now with the pandemic being the way it is and us taking these precautions with some kids having to be pulled out of school and things is we need to invest more heavily in that. Uh, one possible solution I 
I have is there's a there is an organization in the region called the Appalachia Regional Commission uh, that gives grant monies and things like that to communities and entrepreneurs who are uh, willing to service the Appalachian region, you know, across 13 states. In this area, I couldn't think of anything better to jumpstart the economy than get a couple of uh, small technology providers together uh, who are willing to outfit different areas and counties with broadband. Uh, and secure them some money incentives through the Appalachian Regional Commission to do that. Yeah. Now, and I, you know, a few shows ago I had, um, I did a, the show was on the, on broadband and I actually had someone on from Point Broadband to talk a little bit about their plans for the region. They are attempting to do like these pass-bys throughout the region. You've probably seen the trucks, right? They're, they're trying to expand. But even with the expansion, then it's the price of hooking up. And a lot of people can't afford the price it takes to get the, you know, the lines into their homes. So, yeah. And, it's, and it's, that's another thing, too, is like uh, if you what we need is we have we need to saturate the market more with these kind of Internet companies because it's the, it'll be the same problem with the healthcare providers. There's only so much point broadband can do just like there's only so much ballot can provide. So if we diversify our internet providers and encourage more small companies uh, with public funding like that, like they offset the cost of installation through the Appalachian Regional Commission funds, then that goes a long way towards improving the community, which is the mission of the organization, but also answers that problem of how do people afford this themselves? Because it's a service, you know, it's community service and a public good. Yeah. So let me um, pause for just a moment for those who may just now be tuning in. Hi, everyone. This is Red, White, and Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. You're listening today to an interview with one of the ninth congressional district candidates, Elijah Cordell, who was born in Richlands, Virginia, in Tazewell County, graduated from Honeaker High School in 2009, and has lived here uh, throughout his life. So we were just chatting about healthcare, and we were also talking about broadband. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit, and I uh, I always like to do this. I like to do the crystal ball, right? I like to think about the future, the way things could play out in terms of the election. So let's imagine that in November, uh, Elijah, you win, right? You win. You you become the next congressional representative for the ninth district. What's the first thing you want to work on when you get to Congress? The first thing I want to work on? Mm-hmm. This isn't just an Appalachian problem or a Southwest Virginia problem. This is a problem for uh, congressional districts and states across America. And that is uh, corruption in our politics, big money, uh, the influence that corporations and special interests hold over uh politicians you know they're bought and paid for by the same people that's why i'm an independent progressive because no matter what side of the party line you are you can look and see where those donations come from and that pack money it's the same people who run as democrats are uh the same people who receive that coal money just like the republicans do and a lot of that has to do with why there's nothing new that comes in here because every candidate is bought on a pact and that's why I'm running independent, because I don't want their money. I'll, my congressional salary will be five to six times the average salary of what a person in my district makes. I can afford not to get rich off their backs and try to make their lives better. 
Okay. So corruption and politics. I like it. Now, given the history of elections in the United States, um, in terms of thinking about the makeup of Congress and partisanship, you, of course, you, you've said it, and, and I've, I've mentioned that you're running as an independent. So if you win, right, you're going to be in a body that is highly partisan. Mm-hmm. It's highly partisan. Um, and we also know that, you know, during these midterm elections, midterm law means that the president's party usually loses seats in the midterm. So we can kind of expect there to be a drop in the number of Democrats in the House. Doesn't mean the Democrats are going to lose the House. It just means there's, there's possibly going to be a decline in the number of Democratic seats. Um, but you would be coming in as an independent. So can you give our listeners some examples of times that you have worked with people who are different politically from you? Say, um, you know, I actually asked this, this question to Tasha Devon on the last program where I, I was thinking about her as a, she's running as a Democrat. When is the time that perhaps she's kind of reached across the aisle and talked to Republicans or worked on something like that? But for you, you'll be coming at this with a non-party label. So can you give our listeners some examples of when you've done some work, uh, working with people with different interests? Oh, all the time. I mean, uh, philosophically and politically, I'm I'm pretty on the liberal and left side of the spectrum. Uh, I believe that, you know, you invest money in people first, and then that's where you see gains instead of corporations and business. The, uh, the fact of the matter is, is like a lot of people do not have that perspective. And I find myself working with those people quite a lot. Uh, West Virginia, my time up there at Davis and Elkins College is probably one of my most prime examples of that. I was invited to uh, the West Virginia uh, Center for Budget and Policy Summer Institute in 2018 uh, to talk about the opioid epidemic here in Appalachia. And we were actually uh, talking with some state leaders there and different groups, uh, people who are social workers, college students and things like that. We just got selected to come up with policies and panels and kind of pitch these ideas and talk and uh, West Virginia is heavily read but the thing that they one thing that they also are is heavily interested in their people and their citizenry like they that partisan line drops when it comes to the public good of their people Uh, so we were able to put aside our differences on how this how we would typically go about this because they're not much into government spending and things like that but they recognize the priority there so we were able to put aside our differences and come up with some ideas that could serve the community. Like, uh, for instance, uh, I can't remember the name of the model, but essentially it's a house uh, set up that gives people housing and provides a stable environment for them in drug recovery. Uh, And we were able to, through a combination of already existing nonprofit funding and then additional negotiations on funding from the state, this was all hypothetical, like we didn't get this passed, but we worked it, we worked it out. And we were able to come to an agreement that would have tangible results for people and it wasn't just political placation. That's great. So I want to ask you the typical interview question. I, uh, I do interviews often at the college level, a faculty member will apply and then they'll come out and, you know, we ask these questions like, why should, why do you want this job? You know, sell yourself to us, right? Tell, tell us why we should hire you. 
So I'm going to ask you the political version of this, and you can call it the two-minute elevator speech question if you want. You don't have to take two minutes, but it's the, so I have, this is a two-part question. First part is, why should our listeners vote? And the second one is, why should they consider voting for you? Our listeners should vote because America is supposed to be a democracy. And the cornerstone of democracy is political participation. That means that no matter what, your voice and your vote counts and it carries weight. It means something when you select someone to stand up and represent you on the national, state, or local level, because those are the people who are representing your interests in society. Uh, And to have a true democracy, we have to have full participation. And over the last couple of years, we've had 48 and 50% vote turns outs. And those are who are choosing our political leaders, our presidents. It's not the will and majority of the American people. It's a small majority of people who care enough to go out and cast their ballot on that day. So any kind, any the result of anything happening that you don't like kind of falls back on you because you couldn't be bothered to go out that day and participate. And that's something that you really should consider doing because it's not just, you're not just deciding the future for yourselves and your children, but for other people as well when you select these leaders. So you get to play a role in shaping that future and we have to protect it. We have to ensure that everyone's vote counts and that it carries equal weight. And so then the second part is, why should they consider voting for you? You should vote for me because I'm one of you. I didn't come from a family of privilege. I was born and raised in this area. And I saw my friends and neighbors struggle and work and live here. I've been here from the height of the coal boom to its fall. And I saw how our community and our region changed. I saw that the opioid epidemic ravaged our society here and tore people down. It destroyed communities and it ruined families. And it, I mean, it even touched my family. And I saw firsthand what that can do. And that's another step in my plan towards anti-corruption is to make it harder for people to transition from political life to private life and make an illegal gain like that and profit on people's misery. My second point of why you should vote for me is that I have your best interest at heart. I don't care if you agree with me politically or philosophically because what I'm trying to do is improve the circumstances of your life. I want to make sure that you have the money and resources you need to survive. You should, you should have the opportunity to follow the American dream. It was promised to each and every one of us since we were children. And it seems like every year it gets further and further away because we don't prioritize people. And that's what we have to start doing. It's got to stop being about whose side am I on? How many points can I score for my party? And it's got to be, what can I do for my people? Because you can't be a civil servant and serve citizens if you're bought and owned by the people who are exploiting. Well, for listeners who may not know, this perhaps is your first time hearing about Elijah's campaign. He does have a Facebook page. If you go to Facebook and look for Elijah Cordell for Congress, you can find out more about his election. Um, I know, Elijah, I was just recently over there, and I noticed you put up a post about getting signatures to be able to run. You want to tell the listeners anything about that? Uh, Yes. I need 1,000 signatures to appear on the ballot, and I have up until the primary this June to do so because I'm an independent, and I don't have to run through a primary opponent. 
But if you believe in me and you believe in my message, uh, reach out to me and I'll come to where you are so you can sign my petition. Currently, I'm at 31 signatures, uh, but I'll be working until the day comes that I can't do it anymore. Uh, also, if you believe in what I'm saying and would like to work with me, reach out to me. If you just have any questions or an issue you think is important, reach out to me and I'll start working on a solution now because that's what we need is people who are going to work for what you need and what you're asking for, and not people who want to make you happy and lie to you about what they're going to do once they get there. So as Elijah mentioned, the uh, primary this year is scheduled for June 21st of 2022. Um, and Elijah, good luck to you as you continue your campaign. Thanks. For joining me today, everyone who's listening. If you missed any part of this broadcast, you can listen again on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the show comes on on Thursdays and on Sundays on WEHC FM 90.7. Have a great week, everyone.